Okay, we have the opportunity now to uh, either turn in our Bibles, if you take a Bible with you, or if you have a device, you can feel free to use that as well. We are centering our attention this morning on uh, Acts chapter 17. In fact, we're going to be focusing on Acts chapter 17 um, over the next couple of Sundays. We're going to be dealing with the first third of this chapter uh, this morning, and then uh, the, the, the following two-thirds of the chapter um, next week. Now, um, we're continuing our series on evangelism, and um, a number of weeks ago we looked at what evangelism is from the ministry of Jesus and the Gospel of Matthew. We've also looked at various challenges to the Gospel. Remember, if you were here, we looked at Romans chapter 1. Last week, we looked at the three basic component parts or ingredients to effective evangelism. Very simply, praying, acting, speaking from Colossians chapter 4, and now we are going to uh, consider together um, the first 15 verses of Acts chapter 17 as we look at kind of the, in principio way, the, the how of evangelism. So without further ado, because of the time that we have, let's consider Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. The Apostle Paul and a man named Silas, who have been freed from prison, are now moving on in the extension of the gospel. Now, when they had passed, that is, Paul and Silas passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. The Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Jason, by the way, was an individual that was harboring um, and providing accommodations for Paul and Silas. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is, no, uh, there is another king, Jesus, the people, city authorities, were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews are more noble than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, 
Athens is about 300 miles from Berea. So they traveled quite a distance, you know. It's not like you could just get in the car and get there in, you know, five, six hours or so, whatever, whatever it took. And it's very interesting that what Paul and Silas do in Thessalonica and Berea is very different than what they do in Athens. And because of the different context, there are different approaches to evangelism. And we'll get to Athens next week. But for now, we look at Paul and Silas in two cities, Thessalonica and Berea. Now, before we get into that very quickly, if you were here last week, you remember that I told you um, a brief story uh, about a young man that I met in my first pastoral charge in Toronto, Ontario, about 25 years ago. And you remember I shared with you that this young man was shot and killed in downtown uh, Toronto. Before that, I had some, a few days before that, I had some interactions um, with him. And you remember I told the story how he was uh, in troubled times. I gave him money to get back downtown to Toronto because where I pastored was in a suburb of Toronto, probably about 20 miles from downtown. And he didn't have any money. So I said, you just go downtown and once you get there, if I give you the money, would you do me a favor and give me a call? Let me know you're okay. And he actually did that, if you recall that last week. And when we talked um, on the phone that very night, once he got back downtown, um, I had the opportunity to share the gospel with him. I didn't say I took the opportunity. I had the opportunity. But I didn't take the opportunity. Because I figured that it was very likely, because he told me this, that he would do business in our part of town. I won't get into what kind of business. I didn't know at the time. Uh, but he was going to come back in the area, and I thought, you know what, we'll probably have an opportunity to speak again, because he seemed very interested in getting together if he would come back to our part of the, uh, part of the city. But as I told you last week, that never happened. And uh, about two or three days later, I learned... Um, it was major news in Toronto that he was shot and uh, he was murdered. He was killed gangland style in a stairway, shot in the back of the head. And it was very, very sad. And I never forgot that. I never forgot that. I never, and I, I, I always, whenever I talk with someone about the gospel, I always have that in the back of my mind, like this, I might have a minute with you, that's it, you know, and then we'll talk about Jesus. But I didn't take it at the time. Now, after the service, um, a member from this congregation came up to me and this person said, well, if you had taken the opportunity with him, what would you have said to him? And I said, well, then you're gonna have to come over the next two Sundays because we're gonna be dealing with that. But I wanna say to you briefly now is that um, I, I can't say what I would have said to him at that point. And, and, here's, and, and here's the reason why, because every day is different, every person's different, every context is different. And the Bible, as you, you may be aware of, but the Bible does not have any tidy formula or any tidy preser, uh, presentation for us to say, you know, which, which says, you know, you should say this or you should say that, because every context, every person, it, it's all different, okay? But it does provide us with some basic principles. And those basic principles are what we're going to be taking a look at over the next couple of Sundays. So with the time that we have, I want to draw your attention to the passage. We find ourselves with the Apostle Paul and Silas, although the passage focuses primarily on the Apostle Paul, right? And Paul finds himself um, in two cities. We have Thessalonica and Berea. Now, they're part of what we call Macedonia. So at this point in the expansion of the church, Paul and Silas are entering in what we know today as Southern Europe was known at that time as, as Macedonia. 
And they go into these two cities in order to evangelize. In other words, in order to speak about Jesus. And as they do, we learn, I, I think, four basic things about uh, evangelism here. We, we're we're going to see the, the context or the setting of evangelism. And then we're going to look at the content of evangelism, the, the basic content of what they actually say. And then we'll look at their approach, their, their, the kind of method that they use, the manner of evangelism. And then finally, we're going to deal with the response to their evangelistic efforts. And I'll tell you right now, I'm merely going to take maybe a minute or two regarding the response, given the time that we have. We're going to focus on the first three things. And the first thing we consider here this morning is the context, the, 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 the place where they evangelized. And if you notice, when, the, when Paul and Silas go into Thessalonica and Berea, we're at the first place that they go. They go into the Jewish synagogue, the Jewish place of, of worship. They do that both in Thessalonica and Berea. By the way, they also do that in Athens, but they extend their evangelistic witness also in the marketplace and to the academics, the intelligentsia of Athens. We'll look at that next week, okay? But they go into the Jewish synagogue, and this was a regular habit of, of, uh, of Paul, you know, because... Um, he had a ready audience there, right? The Bible says, in fact, the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Romans that the good news of Jesus goes out to the Jew first and then also to the, after that to the non-Jew. So his heart is with the non-Jew to bring the gospel to those who have never heard it before. But his heart is also with the Jews. And there's a lot of connections that Paul has with the Jews in the synagogue, a number of, of contexts. Here, here are the four basic things that Paul has in common with those in his synagogue, which alert us to the fact that this is why he went into the synagogue with the gospel. Number one, Paul himself was a Jew. Not a religious Jew. He's a follower of Jesus now, but he's an ethnic Jew, so there's that tie. Secondly, he knows their customs. Right? He knows their background. And, and thirdly, um, basically he has this in common. He has the Bible in common with him. Now, the, the, the New Testament, right, the 27 books of the New Testament were not written at that point, so, but he did, he did have the first 39 books of the Bible, the Old Testament, in common with him. So he could, he could launch into a gospel presentation on the basis of what they had in common, the Old Testament scriptures. But also, finally, here's something that's rather important for us to understand, is that Another connecting point with Paul with the Jews is that they had a number of fundamental doctrines basically in common. The doctrine of creation, the doctrine of the fall into sin and the effects of sin in the world and in our lives. Um, they also had in common the need, therefore, for some form of redemption, and they also had in common an understanding, at least among most of the Jews, except for the small sect called the Sadducees, um, he had in common the doctrine of the resurrection. Now, I bring that out because next week when we look at Paul's evangelistic ministry in the city of Athens, he doesn't have any of those things in common with them. So he doesn't begin with that starting point of the scriptures, but he does have that with the Jews. One other thing that he has in common, it's a big thing, is the Messiah. The Jews understood that there needed to be a Messiah, and they looked forward to the Messiah. The Apostle Paul understood that the whole of the Old Testament pointed forward to a Messiah. 
And what basically Paul is saying in his synagogue is that Messiah is Jesus. And it's this Jesus, the Messiah, who suffered, who died, and who rose from the dead. Now, the Jews had a very different understanding of the Messiah than the Apostle Paul. They had a different understanding of the nature of the Messiah, the purpose of the Messiah, and also the end of the Messiah. The Jews did not believe in the suffering of a Messiah, the death of Messiah, or ultimately the resurrection of the Messiah. And they also believed that when the resurrection did come of all individuals, that would come at the end of time. And now the Apostle Paul is saying, is no, the Messiah did need to suffer and die and rise from the dead. And I'll explain that a little bit later. And, he, and the resurrection is not just at the end of time, but it's already now. Already now he has risen from the dead. So you see this kind of tension now. So they have many things in common, but the rub for them and for the people in the world today is always Jesus. Who is he? What did he come to do? Did he actually die? Did he actually rise from the dead? My point with all that is, when Paul goes into the synagogue, his main intent in evangelism is to present to them, it's going to sound really simple, Jesus. The reality and the truth of his person and his work. And notice when he goes into the synagogue, at least in Thessalonica, let's begin there. He goes into the synagogue and he's with them for three Sabbaths. Jews worship on Saturday, right? So three Saturday Sabbaths he's with them. We don't know if those are consecutive Sabbaths or if they occurred intermittently. We don't know. It really doesn't matter. The point is he goes into the synagogue on a series of Sabbaths and he speaks to them about Jesus. And I want you to notice when you take a look at the text now, how he does this. He doesn't go into the synagogue like Jesus at the beginning of his ministry and simply preach. But he dialogues with them, back and forth conversations with them. Why do I say that? All right. Look at uh, verse 2. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, notice he, it doesn't say he preached to them from the scriptures. He said he reasoned with them from the scriptures. The word there in the original is dialegomai, from which we get our English word dialogue. He's dialoguing, he's, he's talking with them. Dialogue, not monologue. What you're getting now in the preaching of God's word is monologue. Mono, one or only, log from logos, word. In other words, you have one person speaking, one person proclaiming. I don't think I've ever had it in a worship service where in the midst of preaching, Somebody will raise their hand and say, excuse me, i got a question about that. If it did happen, I would simply nicely say, this is a worship service, but we do that kind of thing in a class or in a small group setting. Preaching is monologue. Preaching is proclamation. And as important as that is, and though Jesus himself has done that on many occasions, and the Apostle Paul too, in fact, that's what he's going to do in Athens. Right now, he's dialoguing with them. So the idea is that he's speaking, people are looking at the Bibles, they're asking questions. He's addressing those questions. That's what evangelism usually is, isn't it? If you're talking one-on-one or a small group setting, there's just interactions going on. More could be said about that, but we move on. And I want you to notice, when he's in the synagogue, the approach that he takes in dialoguing with them. He doesn't present them Jesus and then do a comparison contrast of Jesus with other gods and other religions. 
No, he speaks to Jesus about them on the basis of this, on the basis of the connecting point he has with them, the Old Testament scriptures. Okay? Take a look at verses 2 and 3. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them, notice, from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. We see two very important things here as we move on from the setting. We see the content, the basic substance of what he's saying to them in his evangelism. But also what we see is we actually get to see the manner of it, how he actually does it. It's very interesting. So first of all, he speaks to them about Jesus. And what does he talk about in connection with Jesus? He talks about his suffering, and it says his resurrection. We can assume the death of Jesus as well, because you can't have a resurrection without death. So he speaks about the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He doesn't get into dicey topics like predestination, the sovereignty of God, the nature of baptism, the end times, things that a lot of people like to talk about today. No, he, not to say that they're not important, but his main focus there is on Jesus. That has to be the main focus of any time that we speak the gospel to others. There's all kinds of things that you can talk about in the realm of Christian theology, but in terms of evangelism, you need to keep it focused, you need to keep it basic. Suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So for instance, when I interact periodically with Mormon missionaries, or when the Jehovah Witness comes to my door and they wanna talk about blood transfusions, or end times, or some kind of esoteric thing that's going on in society around us, I always kind of stop at one point and I say, let's just talk about Jesus. That's what really matters. Let's begin there. And that's what the Apostle Paul's doing there. And he's basically trying to convince them that, that the Old Testament scriptures are, 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 are pointing to Jesus. I'll get to that in just a moment. But he's saying, listen, the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we know this by what he says elsewhere in the Bible, is absolutely necessary. Notice what he says here. He says it, he, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. It's, it's not something that just happened. It was absolutely necessary. Why is it necessary for Jesus to suffer and die and rise from the dead? Because that's the only way that we can be set free from the guilt and the penalty and the power of sin through that work of Jesus on our behalf. There's no freedom apart from what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he has done. And he drives that home. He drives that home. Because the Jews did not believe in the suffering, nor the death, nor the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says, it just didn't happen. You have to believe it if you're going to be freed from your sins and to be reconciled to God. That has to be in our heart too. That's why evangelism is so necessary because there is no being received by God in heaven apart from Jesus. Now, there's a lot here. Moving on, the Apostle Paul speaks to them about Jesus, but I want you to notice how he does it. Not just what he says, but how, how he presents Jesus to them. Look closely at the wording again. He reasons with them from the scriptures, notice these two words, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Explaining and proving. In other words, he lays out the truth of Jesus, but also what he does in proving Jesus, he's laying out a case for Jesus. Now, the word in original language is very interesting here. 
it, the, the word to prove means literally to place or to put alongside of. You're like, well, what does that really mean? I think what the gospel writer Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, is doing here when he uses that word that means to place alongside of, is he's placing two things alongside of each other. The Old Testament scriptures and Jesus. More particularly, very likely what he's doing is he is placing alongside the types and the shadows and the promises and the predictions, the prophecies, the laws, the covenants, talking about temple and temple worship and the priesthood and all of that. And he's saying all of these things of the Old Testament are all pointing forward to him, to Jesus. In fact, you and I cannot really understand, appreciate the Old Testament unless we look at the Old Testament as spokes of a wheel pointing to a central hub, which is who? It's Jesus, his person and his work. Wouldn't you have loved to be in the synagogue listening at that time and just listening to Paul? I mean, the best thing would be listening to Jesus and his preaching and his teaching. But even with the Apostle Paul, how, how exactly did he do it? What did he all say? What made him so, so powerful in his evangelistic presentation that he persuaded a number of people? I don't know if you ever think about that. But I'm just, every once in a while, I kind of go, man, what would it be like to be there? So we see the content in the presentation. And by the way, very quickly, I want to suggest to you that what he did in Thessalonica, in that synagogue, he did the same thing in a synagogue in Berea. He presents to them Jesus, and what we find with the, with the people in Berea is that, man, they were all on task. And the Bible says they were more noble-minded because they were diligently searching the scriptures to determine if what Paul said was actually true. Take a look, 10 and following. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Now, why is that? Well, they received the word with all eagerness, which shows their spirit. But look at this. It says, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The word examining is used of a judicial investigation. So, when Paul is presenting Jesus to them, they're doing a very deliberate and detailed and penetrating analysis to understand that what Paul was saying about Jesus, was it actually true or not? They're scouring the scriptures. All right. Now, there's more here, but I want to just step aside for just a moment because I'm getting quite a bit into the background of the passages. Um, every once in a while I'm preaching, you need to give people a breather. So we'll take a little bit of a breather. I want to talk on a very practical side of things here. Um, you see that the Apostle Paul and Silas are in a very specific context here. They're in the synagogue. Most of us don't find ourselves going into a Jewish synagogue. I don't know, maybe you've visited a Jewish synagogue before, maybe not. I would assume most of us not. And so they find themselves in a, in a very specific context. Next week, the Apostle Paul's going to find himself in a very different context than the Jewish synagogue. It's important that we understand the context, and here's why. Because context determines our approach in sharing the gospel with others, right? 
And every day we find ourselves in a different context, in a different place, in a different environment, with different kinds of people, with different personalities and mannerisms and abilities and all of that. So that when you present the gospel, and this is what contextualization is all about, you've got to understand the setting because the setting which you're in is going to determine how you're going to share the gospel, how you're going to evangelize. Because again, the Bible just doesn't give us one tidy presentation or formula that you can just, as a template, put on all situations, right? So the Apostle Paul is in a very specific setting. But fact of the matter is we find ourselves in all kinds of different settings, don't we? So I want to, um, I don't want to take too much time with this because the, the idea then, uh, or the question that people have is like, well, what am, I, what, am I, what am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to do? Let me, let me um, at this point share with you a few things by way of personal experience and maybe you can learn some things, not to say that I have it all together. Um, or maybe these, these, what I'm about to say is some of you can identify with. As you can imagine, Pastor Michael and I, especially as the pastors of this church, meet all kinds of different people, other than just the, the members of this church. And these people come from all kinds of different backgrounds. Some have exposure to organized religion, some don't. Um, some know Jesus, some don't. Some know a little bit about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and the contents of the Bible, some of them don't, you know. Some of them are just blank slates, but a lot of times they're just kind of uh, curious because people are more religiously curious than we, we give them credit for, actually. You know, we like to think that this increasingly post-Christian secular culture is all hostility toward the Christian faith. There's that out there, but we might be surprised how, how increasingly curious people are about matters of faith. Okay, so they come in a, in a different context. A lot of time what I do, and I have something... Um, in a sense, in my pocket that you don't have, and that is my pastoral position. So when people come to the pastor, they expect the pastor <laughs> to talk about spiritual things. That makes my job a little bit easier, but nonetheless, we're all Christians together, and so we should always be open to, to as we saw last week, opportunities. So really basically, when I have, if I have time with someone, I love to just sit down with them, and I want to get to know them. I do not ever, I, I hope I don't trust uh, uh, Treat them as projects or objects, but as people. Get to know people as people. And when you, when you talk with them and you, and you sit down with them or you're standing with them and talking about things, um, don't be afraid to ask them about themselves. A lot of people don't mind talking about themselves. And when I sit down with individuals, I say, just tell me about yourself. Tell me your story. Where you've been? Who are you? Um, and they, and they do that. And sometimes it'll take 20 minutes or a half hour. But that's important to understand who they are and where they're coming from. Then I tell them, I want to share you my story. And I always do that so I don't give the impression that I'm an interrogator. Because sometimes I've been charged with that. It's like, oh, sometimes you seem like you're interrogating people. And I don't want to do that. So I want to say, okay, here's my story. And it's, so it's give and take. Then very quickly, what I like to do is I like to say, let's talk about some fundamental matters of life what I call worldview matters. And I say, I'm, I'm curious, what, what do you believe about these things? Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. In other words, who are we? How do we get here? Um, morality, how should we live? Meaning, what is the purpose of life? And destiny, what, what, what do you think happens when we die? You know? 
And usually in the course of things, in talking about the Christian faith, I, I, I oftentimes ask a question that was posed in a program called Evangelism Explosion in the 1970s. And I asked them the question, you, you've, you've, you've heard this before, right? If you should die tonight, um, why should God allow you into heaven? And it's a very important, simple question because their answer will determine if they understand the gospel or not. And a lot of times they'll say, well, you know, I think that I might be able to be accepted by God in heaven because I've done such and such and such and such. And what that tells you is that they're trusting in their goodness rather than the work of Christ on their behalf. Or sometimes it's a combination. Well, it's because I believed in Jesus, but I've also lived a good life and these kinds of things. So it's very telling. And from that point, we just talk about Jesus more. We talk about why Jesus came, the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the importance of that. And then we talk about, um, oftentimes I'll talk about the church. Because you really can't have Jesus without the church you can't grow in your faith in Jesus without the church. And in the Bible, Jesus and the church are always together, okay? And then one final, there's so much more that could be said, but I will just say this before getting back to the passage. Um, brothers and sisters, if, if you ever get an opportunity to share the gospel with someone where the, the door has been opened for you, many times you're not gonna have more than a minute. And what I have found on so many occasions in talking with someone, I'm kind of, you know, we're, we're dialoguing with each other and I know the time is starting to run out. And almost invariably at some point there is an interruption. Somebody comes along, somebody starts a conversation and that, that puts a roadblock in the kind of conversation that we're having. I wonder sometimes if the devil himself just kind of comes along and tries to steer things in a different direction, even though it seems innocent at the time. So you may have anywhere from 30 seconds to one minute to share the gospel. Put yourself in that situation. What would you say? Where would you begin? Here's what I would say. Maybe you can learn from that, and then we're going to get back into this. One minute. God is real, and God is the creator of the universe. He made you, and he made me. And he made you and me to have fellowship, to have communion with him, to have a relationship with him, for God is a personal relational God. But there's a reality called sin, and what sin does is sin, you could say a lot about it, but it fundamentally separates us from God. And it makes us liable to his anger and also to his judgment. That is a hard thing to say but it is true. And sin affects not only our relationship with God, but sin affects our relationship with others and causes untold pain and enslavement in our lives. But here's the thing about God. God has not abandoned his world. And he's not abandoned us. And what he's done, he sent his son Jesus into the world to free us from sin, specifically to free us from the guilt and the penalty and the power of sin so that we might live as a free people, and so that we might live for him. This is a beautiful thing that God has done. And God gives this freedom from sin to all those who are willing to repent of their sin, turn from it, and embrace Jesus Christ in faith. And when we do that, we are set free, we are reconciled to God, and we begin to live then the life that God has chosen for us, not only in this life, but in the life to come. And he does it for his glory. And he does it for our joy and our satisfaction. 
There you go. I doubt any of you were timing that. Maybe you did, but I think it's around a minute. Okay? Get to the basics. Why do I give you the basics? So that's what Paul's doing in the synagogue. Then one final thing, and I told you at the beginning, I'm going to take two minutes on this for the sake of time. I want you to notice the response that he receives when he brings the gospel to bear in the synagogue. When you evangelize, expect one of two things, acceptance or rejection. They may come in different forms, but fundamentally, people are always, they're going to receive it, want more of it, or they're going to go like this. The Apostle Paul says elsewhere, the word of God is an aroma of life unto life, but sadly also death unto death. Jesus says, you're either for me or against me. You either gather with me or you scatter. So very quickly, take a look at verses 4 and 5. Paul preaches Jesus, or he explains Jesus, he dialogues about Jesus, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, that is, God-fearing non-Jews who embrace the Judaistic faith, but now are embracing Jesus, and also not a few of the leading women. It's very interesting that when the gospel goes out, in contrast to a number of religions at the time, the gospel transcended race and gender regarding men and women. The women also received it, and also class. That's one of the beautiful things about the gospel. It's a great unifier. But notice the response of some of the Jews. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the, of the, of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, who was harboring Paul and Silas, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Now, I'm not going to deal with verses 6, 7, 8, and 9 there, but, but they, they raised an issue regarding Paul and Silas. It's like, these guys go into the synagogue, and they're causing problems, and they're not only causing problems for us, but they're call, uh, causing problems for the, for the Roman Empire. They're saying Jesus is king, not Caesar. So they're stirring up problems for Paul and Silas. You see, some are persuaded, some are angry. Now, also finally look at verses 10 through 12. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night, right, for their safety to Berea. And when they arrived, they, they didn't go into hiding. <laughs> they went into another Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians, for they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures. Okay. Verse 12, many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as the men but also verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Always two responses. Expect them. Expect them. In the end, as we wrap it up, our passage gives us a little insight in how to share the gospel with others and encourages us with these things. Know who you're talking to. Get to know them. Treat them as people. Ask them questions. This is what Jesus did in his ministry. Always ask questions. Listen to them. Love them. Be Jesus-centered. Be able to explain the gospel simply. And finally, don't be surprised at their responses. And if the response is one of hostility, or let's say indifference, don't bear the guilt. Present the gospel and you leave it up to the Lord because if the Lord's gonna open up their heart, 
is going to open up their heart and it's going to transform them from the inside all the way working out to the outside. How do you bar the door when God grips a person's heart? Because they are drawn and there's nothing you can do to keep them following Christ. That is a, a beautiful thing. And if there's anyone here this morning who's somewhat intrigued by this whole passage and the beauty of the gospel, you see me up here. Talk with me afterwards. Let's talk about the gospel together. Okay? Enough said. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that the gospel goes forth in the preaching of your word, which we have the privilege to hear from Sunday to Sunday. Thank you again for this opportunity. But Father, we also know that it oftentimes goes forth just one-on-one -on -one through our interactions with people or small group settings or even in, the, in the, the classes that we're gonna have as part of our education year. God bless those classes. We pray that in them also our children may receive the gospel and others who visit may receive the gospel. And we pray, O oh God, that in our worship and in the preaching and in our classes and in our one-on-one -on -one conversations, that our heart's desire and our focus would be on Jesus, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection for our good and our freedom and your glory. God, open up doors for us and give us the ability, O oh God, to speak forth the word just simply and beautifully. We pray in a compelling way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.